Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Two weeks ago, we left our rebellious prophet Jonah in a very precarious position, sinking to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea toward certain death. And I'm sure that you've been worried sick about him for the last two weeks, waiting anxiously for this day when we could get together and resume the drama. The truth, of course, is that you've not been worried at all because you already know the rest of the story. But even if you did not know the rest of the story, you would not have been worried because there's nothing to worry about. I mean, it's a done deal. Jonah is going to die. And short of a miraculous intervention by God, there is no other way that this story is going to end. Now, all too many Christian parents know the heartache of a rebellious child. I don't mean a child in the midst of the terrible twos. I don't mean a teenager doing what teenagers do, and that is acting and thinking like they know far more than their parents do. When I'm talking about a rebellious child, I'm talking about an adult child who has walked away from the faith in which they were raised, from the God who they were taught to believe in, leaving parents praying and reflecting upon what they've done wrong or what they could have done differently or what they need to do now. Do we talk to them yet again, urging them to make different choices than the one that they are making, risking pushing them away from us in the process? Do we explain the gospel to them one more time, hoping that finally the message just might sink in? Or do we assure them of our love and continue praying that God will change their heart and bring them home? Or is the answer all of these things and more? I don't think there's one right answer to these troubling questions of parenting and faith. I think the individual situations dictate different answers, but surely we can learn something about our own rebellious children from this rebellious prophet named Jonah. Or if we're not in that specific situation, we can certainly learn something about the rebellious nature of our own hearts. You will recall that Jonah has boarded a ship to Tarshish, which of course is in the exact opposite direction from where he was supposed to be going to share the gospel with the Ninevites. But God used a storm to save not only the sailors on board, but to change the heart of Jonah, which we will see in just a moment. But in order for all of that to happen, Jonah had to be thrown overboard. So when we last saw him, the sailors on, the bo- the sailors on board the ship were now in a calm sea, and they were sacrificing and making vows to the God whom they had just met. While God's prophet is still being rebellious and is sinking to the bottom of the sea. Now, I will remind you that we said a good theme for this story is evangelism and the sovereignty of God. 
God is in control of all things, and that certainly includes salvation. And God has a merciful and missionary heart desiring to save those who are lost. And that means people from all nations. And so we pick up the story this morning in the last verse of chapter 1. And we're going to see how God pursues a rebel. Remember, Jonah is the fifth of the 12 minor prophets that end the Old Testament. So if you don't know where it is, it might be easier to go to the end of the Old Testament and work your way backwards. You and I may never be swallowed by a fish. We may never have a miraculous encounter with anybody in the animal kingdom, but God still does pursue his children. And that includes when we rebel against him. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up on the dry land. We are talking about how God pursues a rebel, and we are going to start with the fact that in this case, God appoints a fish. Now, of course, this is the part of the story that liberal scholars and those who want to undermine the authenticity and authority of God's word camp out and they have a field day. They conclude that there is no fish, no matter how great, which could do this, leading some to call this fish the most criticized fish that ever swam the Mediterranean Sea. And even if there were a fish that were big enough to swallow a man, Certainly no man could live within that fish for this length of time. As a result, they conclude that this is a fable, a made-up story, but since it's presented in Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, as factual, it undermines everything. It undermines the inspiration of God's Word and the God who stands behind His Word. And those who hold such a position concerning this story also tend to discount the other miracles that are recorded, both in the Old and the New Testament. In fact, that's oftentimes their underlying worldview. They simply don't believe that miracles are possible. 
A miracle, by definition, is something that is outside of the normal course of nature, something that goes contrary to the laws of nature and therefore does not occur on a regular or consistent basis. So I recognize that this part of the story is not normal. I don't personally know anyone who has experienced something similar. And my guess is you don't either. There have been a few instances in recorded history of something similar taking place. And I could recount those for you, but I'm not going to spend my time trying to prove verse 17. It is an event that is either accepted by faith as a miracle of God, or it is an event that you are going to deny took place whether I give you evidence or not. Plus, I want to remind you that the great fish is not the main character in this story. Neither is he the drama, the hero of this drama. We said week one that God is the main character, and he is the one who is acting in this portion of the story. In verse 17, it is the Lord who is the subject of the sentence, and the Lord appointed a great fish, which is why my title this morning has God as the subject, God pursues a rebel. It is why all three of my points are going to have God as the subject with God doing something, committing some sort of action in the process. And here it is that he appointed a great fish. This is not coincidence. It is not by chance that Jonah just happened to be thrown overboard where by chance a great fish happened to be. No, all of this was God's design, a sovereign God who is in control of his creation and using it for his purposes. If he can cause a donkey to speak in the Old Testament, he can cause a great fish to swallow a man and allow that man to live within the belly of that fish. But why three days and three nights. Did it really take Jonah that long to come to his senses and cry out to God? Well, frankly, it does appear that that is the case. Testifying to how hard his heart had become. But there is, of course, more to it than that. The traditional belief at this time was that three days confirmed a death. There was no coming back after someone had been dead for that length of time. That's why when we come to the New Testament and that familiar story of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, when they asked Jesus to come because Lazarus was sick, Jesus delayed. And when he finally arrived, Lazarus had been dead for four days because Jesus comes to them and he says to them, roll the stone away. And they say to Jesus, by now there is going to be a foul odor because he's been dead for four days. The point being, when Lazarus did come out, there was no mistaking what had happened, that he had literally died and Jesus had resurrected him from the dead. So the length of time that Jonah spent in the fish is confirmation that this is indeed a miracle. No man could survive that long inside of a fish if God were not orchestrating and intervening. Now, I told you we'd go back to this passage and we, would, we, we are going to do it right now, and we will do it again in the weeks ahead. But there is a reference to this verse in a dialogue that Jesus had with the Pharisees and scribes. They came to him on one occasion and asked him to show them a sign. Never mind that they had already seen plenty of signs. They had witnessed his miracles already and frankly had complained about those miracles that were sometimes done on the Sabbath. 
but they asked for another sign. They wanted something else, claiming that they would believe in Jesus if they had such a sign. And he condemns them for their request, but he actually says there is a sign. And he says the sign is the sign of Jonah. That just like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so shall the Son of Man, that is a reference to Jesus, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. So Jonah, and specifically this last verse of chapter 1, serves as a sign, an Old Testament picture of what would happen to Christ as he died and rose again to purchase our salvation. Now I realize that Jonah didn't die. But as we'll see in a moment, he considered himself as good as dead. But for someone or something to be a sign doesn't mean that every detail has to match. The Old Testament is filled with signs pointing to greater realities that are fulfilled in the New Testament. So this sign of Jonah is just one among many. I think of the bronze serpent when the Israelites were in the wilderness They were bitten by snakes, and they were told if they would look upon this bronze serpent that they would be saved, and they were. And the New Testament tells us that that bronze serpent was a sign, a sign of Christ on the cross, and all of those who looked to him would be saved. We could say much the same thing about the story of Abraham and Isaac. When Abraham is told to sacrifice the son of the promise, and he is willing to do that, And in that story, we are told that God will provide, and God indeed does provide and did provide and continues to provide. The whole story of the exodus from Egypt and the journey into the promised land is filled with signs. There are simply far too many for me to mention this morning, but Jonah is one of those. Three days and three nights in the belly of the fish as a sign of what Jesus would do on our behalf. And that is why I said week one that Jesus believed the story of Jonah to be a factual event when he compared it to his own death and resurrection. So God is pursuing this rebel prophet, in this case by appointing a fish. Now again, you may or may not have wayward children, but if you do, God may just be pursuing them in an unlikely and maybe even unseen way. Now I can't promise that. But I can promise that no one is so far gone that it can't be a reality. Jonah looked like a dead man for sure, but God appointed a fish. He may just be appointing someone or some, something else in the life of your wayward loved one. We simply don't know the end of our own story. Secondly, we need to notice as we move into chapter 2 that this sovereign God repairs a heart. We become so focused on the fish. I mean, even those, those of us who believe this to be a real factual story, we get so focused on the fish that we might miss the significant miracle in this story. The fish is indeed an act of God's mercy in stopping Jonah in his tracks and ultimately preserving his life. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. The greatest miracle in this story is the miracle of restoration. It is not the miracle of preservation. Jonah's heart needs to be transformed so that he will return to God. Otherwise, this great fish will become his tomb. So for the first time in this story, Jonah turns to God in prayer. 
In chapter one, we saw that the ship's captain came and woke Jonah up and urged him like everybody else was doing to pray to his God. But we have no record that Jonah actually did that. But here he finally turns to God, presumably after those three days. I mean, isn't this a classic example of waiting till the last minute when there's nothing else that can be done, when everything is out of our power and out of our control to finally turn to God in prayer and then crying out to him in desperation once we realize there's nothing that we can do. When we've done all that we know to do, we finally turn to God. Why not turn to God initially? Well, it must be our pride and our desire to be in control, our unwillingness to admit when our life is out of control. Can you imagine how different this story would have been had Jonah simply turned to God in prayer and repentance when the storm first began? Perhaps our lives would be vastly different if we would turn to God initially rather than wait until things are out of control. Jonah's prayer is one of the great prayers of the Bible, though it's probably not one you often think about. It comes in the form of a poem. And if we were just pick these verses out, if we were to just take verses one through nine and pull it out of the book of Jonah and crochet it onto some uh, decorations for your wall, you probably wouldn't remember or realize that this comes from the book of Jonah. Most would assume it was part of the Psalms because it certainly sounds like a lot of the Psalms. Now, there's no direct quotation here of the Psalms, but Jonah is really just going over some of the major themes that we find in the book of Psalms, which I think is a good place to pause here in the story and consider what comes out of the mouth of Jonah during his time of trouble. It is scriptural language that comes out. No doubt the Psalms that he had learned from childhood and had also known in adulthood. Remember I said week one that the book of Jonah is very late in the history of the Old Testament, which means Jonah knew the Psalms. He had been taught them, he had recited them, he had sung them. He was familiar with them. And that is the language that comes out in his time of distress as he's praying. So let me ask you, what's gonna come out of your mouth during your times of trouble? Well, let me just answer for you. Scriptural language is only going to come out of your mouth in times of trouble if you've ingested scriptural language during the other times of your life, which is one of the reasons why it is so significant for us to spend time in God's word. Well, let's notice three things about this change in Jonah's heart, this prayer that he is going to offer. First of all, it is a prayer of distress, Jonah realizes that he is in trouble and he doesn't want to be, which frankly already demonstrates a portion of his heart change because previously, you remember, he wanted to die. When the sailors asked him, what do we need to do to you in order that the sea might be calm, Jonah says, you need to throw me overboard, which of course we've said means certain death. He was willing to die rather than repent and obey God and ultimately go to Nineveh. We have something these days called suicide by cops. 
That is occasionally somebody who wants to commit suicide, but apparently doesn't have the nerve to do it themselves, will provoke a police officer to shoot them so that they will die. This in our story is suicide by sailors. Jonah says to them, cast me overboard and this will all be over with. Only now, after several days of reflection, he no longer wants to die. Let me pause there once again and say no matter what you are going through, suicide is not the answer. As some have said, it is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. I'm confident many people had they not been successful in their suicide and had had several days to contemplate and reflect as Jonah does, that they would have done something much different. Studies are consistently showing us that suicides are up over all age ranges, including young adults and senior adults. And while it is not the unpardonable sin, it is not the proper solution to our problems. A much better option is exactly what Jonah does now. He prays to to God in his time of distress, and he is confident that God is going to hear him. I know we struggle there as well, sometimes wondering whether God listens or even cares. After months or maybe even years of praying about a particular issue and seeing no visible results, it's natural to wonder if prayer is effective. But deep down, we know the Bible says God does care, God does love us, and he does hear the prayers of his saints. So we must not allow our current experiences to overshadow the confident truth that we have in God's word. Whatever else we may say about Jonah, and we're going to say some more negative things in the future, he knew that God heard and answered his prayers of distress. And so this prayer of distress is accompanied by picturesque language that describes for us Jonah's current situation and mindset. Now, I'm not going to take the time to dissect every phrase that he mentions here in his prayer. Instead, I'm going to try to hit the high points and assign you the homework of reading this prayer and meditating upon it sometime later this week. But it is clearly what we might call a near-death experience. Sheol in the Bible is the place of the dead. But of course, we know that Jonah did not literally die. So it is also a word used as a place of divine punishment, where Jonah certainly felt like he was on the verge of death and would in fact die unless God intervened. He had hit rock bottom, as we sometimes say, and oftentimes that's what it takes for us to cry out to God in our distress. And so this prayer of distress becomes a prayer of repentance. Notice that Jonah is now attributing all of this to God, recognizing God's hand in his entire situation. It was God who cast him into the deep. He says, your waves and your billows, stressing God's sovereignty once again over nature. Now you might want to say, but wasn't it the sailors who threw Jonah overboard and not God? And of course you are correct. But Jonah recognized that those sailors were mere agents in the hand of God. It wasn't their fault. It wasn't a poor situation or just bad circumstances. He recognizes God's hand in all of this. And then he says, God has driven him away. And again, we want to stop and say, wait a minute. 
Jonah, you're the one that was running from God. We know that. He knew that. And now he says that God has driven him away. He is feeling the absence of God. Though, of course, God had not driven him away. God had not deserted him. We know that for a fact because had God deserted him, Jonah would have already drowned. But the fact that he has not drowned shows us that God has not deserted or departed from him. But he feels that way. God has given Jonah exactly what he wanted. Remember, why is he running to Tarshish? Because he's running away from the presence of God. And now he's experiencing the lack of the presence of God and he doesn't like it. Isn't that just like sin and disobedience? Promising all sorts of satisfaction and joy and never able to deliver on such lofty claims. So Jonah now turns, which is essentially what repentance is. And in verse four, he says, I will look upon the holy temple again. In verse seven, he mentions the temple for a second time saying, I remember the Lord. So don't mistake the fact that what Jonah wants now is a return to the presence of God and fellowship with God. Once again, we are so focused on the fish and ultimately Jonah being vomited onto dry ground that we might miss this point. Jonah never asked for deliverance from the fish. At least as far as we know, that's not what he's asking for. What his ultimate desire is, is to return to the presence of God. What he wanted was renewed fellowship and restoration with God. And that's what he cries out for. And that is initially what he receives. And this is what repentance is about. A confession of sin and a returning to the Lord. We often focus on only the first half of that equation. That is a confession of sin. But again, the word repentance means a change in direction. A turning or a, a heading in the opposite direction. And that is exactly what we discover here in this story. And that is what makes repentance genuine. Many are quick to repent when they are caught or forced to confess. Others are quick to cry out in repentance when they want the consequences of their actions to disappear. We are seeing this take place across the evangelical world, whether in churches or in ministries. A leader or a pastor commits what uh, disqualifies them from ministry. They repent, and after a few months, they declare themselves restored, or some other group declares them to be restored, all because they want their place of leadership and influence to return and the consequences to disappear. And this is being allowed because followers equate the words of repentance with true repentance, which is not always the case. We actually do not know, at least at this point, whether Jonah's repentance is for real, whether it is genuine. We will not know that until chapter 3 when God issues a second call to Jonah to go to Nineveh. How will we know if his repentance is genuine if he goes to Nineveh? Is it real repentance or is he just crying out in his time of trouble? Notice also the opposite side of this equation of his prayer of repentance in verse 8. He acknowledges that those who turn from God to worthless idols have forsaken the love of God, which is their only hope. Now, perhaps he's recalling the fruitless prayers of the sailors who were crying out to dead gods. 
Or maybe he's thinking only of himself and his ill-fated run from God. We do know in Israel's history that from the time of the Exodus all the way to the time of Jonah, their prevailing sin was idolatry. Either way, this statement is true. Idols can't possibly satisfy and they can't possibly love. I want to say one more thing about this prayer of repentance before moving on. We've said that Jonah recognized the sovereignty of God in all of this, meaning he knew that God's hand was in the storm, God's hand was in that fish, and God's hand was upon his life. But that does not mean he is blaming God for his time of distress. Rather, this prayer of repentance is taking responsibility for his actions. So did God bring about all of this, or was it Jonah's fault? Yes, Those two things are both true. God has brought this about in order to change the heart of Jonah. But it all came about because Jonah was rebelling and running from the presence of God. So God's sovereignty does not override man's responsibility, even if we cannot explain it. And Jonah understood both of those parts. So let me say thirdly about this change of heart. This is a prayer of thanksgiving. That's the way verse 9 begins. But the question is, what is Jonah thankful for? Now, I remind you that verse 9 comes before verse 10. And you say to yourself, I do need reminders from time to time, but I don't need that reminder. I'm not that dumb. I understand that 9 precedes 10. But I'm not talking about the order of the verses. I'm talking about the events themselves. Jonah is thankful to God before being delivered from the fish. And at that point, he has no idea what God is going to do. He does not know the end of the story like we do. And yet he is thankful to God that, he, that God has heard his prayers of repentance and has restored him to faith and fellowship. Again, that's what he wanted all along. Running from God's presence didn't satisfy, so now he's thankful that God has changed his heart, leading him to return. He is calling out to God once again, whom he had run from, because God has changed his heart. Now, I'm not saying this is Jonah's salvation experience. I don't think it is. I think this is a rebellious child of God who has run from God, and now God has changed their heart and changed his heart and brought him back. But it certainly does picture the salvation process where God changes our hearts so that we long for him rather than desiring to run from him. And that is why we should be continually thankful that God pursued us, changed our heart, and drew us unto himself, even as he continues to do when and if we rebel against him. Which leads to our last point, God delivers a servant. Though we've already said that the most important part of the deliverance has already occurred. Jonah has returned to the Lord. And notice that his response is worded almost identically to what we find the sailors doing in chapter 1 and verse 16. Though remember, Jonah was not on board when the sailors were sacrificing and vowing to God, so he did not know that they had done that. But now he does the same thing. He is going to sacrifice to God. He is going to fulfill the vows that he had made. 
And surely at least part of those vows include being obedient to God and going to Nineveh, which of course we'll see in the next part of the story. Now we know that sacrifices are a very important part of the Old Testament. But we also know that we no longer offer sacrifices to God. Only that's not exactly true. We don't offer blood sacrifices or animal sacrifices because Christ, according to Hebrews, is the once for all sacrifice for our sins. So no further sacrifice in that regard is necessary, but we do still offer sacrifices to God. Romans chapter 12, verses one and two says, present your bodies as living sacrifices. That is, as we are transformed by the word of God, we offer ourselves to do the will of God. Meaning our sacrifice is not dying, but our sacrifice is living in obedience to God, desiring to follow his will, which again is a true sign of genuine repentance and a change of heart. But notice the last part of verse 9, a phrase that could well sum up the entire message of the Bible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Does that mean that Jonah now realizes that if God wants to save the Ninevites, he can save the Ninevites, with or without Jonah for that matter? Or is Jonah here referring to his own salvation, giving praise to God for saving and changing him? Or is it perhaps a combination of the two? Regardless, this is a comprehensive statement across the board. This sovereign God, which we've seen change the storm, bringing the storm, calming the storm, appointing a fish, is the same God who is in absolute control of salvation. It is God alone who can save, and Jonah is praising him for that fact. And that's why you and I should never grow cold to the same truth. And should always gladly say and sing, salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, I hope you've at least seen this morning that the drama of this story does not take place primarily in the belly of a fish. Rather, the main drama of this story takes place in the heart of Jonah. That is where God is pursuing him and that is where the change takes place. I remember many years ago in my first church finding out one Sunday afternoon about a situation that was going on in the church that I was unaware of, but a lot of people in the church were aware of and nobody had told me. And when I found out about it after the Sunday night service, I went over to this man's house. We stood in his driveway leaning against his truck and talking about the situation. I don't remember about the conversation, what I said or what he said, except for his repeated reply to me urging him to repent. Multiple times he kept saying, it's too late. And I kept trying to assure him it is never too late. But he kept saying to me, it is too late. If Jonah teaches us anything, it is that it is never too late to repent and return to God. Maybe that's the message you need to hear this morning. You need to admit that God is pursuing you. He's pursuing you because you're running from him and he wants you to repent and return and it is not too late for that to happen. Or maybe the message for you is for someone you've been praying for, a reminder for you not to lose hope and not to give up. The situation may seem hopeless even as it no doubt did those three days and three nights when Jonah was in the belly of the fish. But God is a God of hope. 
Don't lose heart because salvation belongs to the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you that you are sovereign and in control of all things, which includes our spiritual lives. Thank you on behalf of the many here this morning who you pursued years ago, changing their heart even as you changed Jonah and led them into a relationship with you. But Lord, there might be some here this morning that you are actively pursuing, that either they have never been saved or they are saved and yet they're running from you and you are pursuing them in your own way. I pray that they would learn and hear that it's never too late to repent and return. And that like Jonah, you can change our hearts. We thank you for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You're dismissed.